0: Of, of these branches, it's the one which is the most different from the rest of the workflow, um, in the sense that it leverages expertise from, from outside of the group, uh, and we provide inputs from that, from what we provide into other tools, and allow you to bring those outputs back into your VCF. Um, so, in in some sense, ooh, cool. Um, in some sense, uh, my goodness. Yeah, so in, in some sense, um, we finish. I can't get. <laughs> we finish at around the, around this point. So what we do is we provide a kind of windowed view of the data um, that has likelihoods and genotypes based on a kind of local context, where we've enforced none of the conditions of biology except for ploidy. We don't restrict to Mendelian transmission. We don't look at other variants. Uh, nearby in order to leverage things like LD or D-prime to inform the genotypes. We don't look at family structure in order to assess phase. Um, And so this branch of the workflow allows us to look outside of this local view in order to improve the genotypes and generate additional information such as phasing. Um, And so there are really sort of two purposes. Uh, One is that phase tells you something about haplotypes. And haplotypes are really what are generating um, phenotypic differences, right? In some sense, all the variants on the haplotype are linked together and have some kind of a joint effect. Um, And so if you have a Mendelian disease that's caused by a loss of function event, um, it matters, potentially, whether it came from your mother or your father because of things like parental silencing and things like that. Um, And in addition, these kinds of Mendelian transmissions and these kinds of um, LD blocks, they tell you something about genotypes. So particularly in low-pass sequencing, where your genotype likelihoods can be fairly broad because you only have maybe one or two observations of a variant, you can use an individual's genotypes, with respect to everybody else that you sequence as a part of that study, to assess what really is the likelihood of a genotype at this particular site, given not just the reads at that site, but all of the reads in a large context, simply by looking at the likelihoods of other variants and how often um, heterozygotes or homozygotes at different sites co-occur within individuals. So here's an an example of um, the former case where you're looking at a trio. Um, And so what you have here is on top is daughter. You've been seeing uh, images of, of her sequencing all day. This is NA12878, um, and we have a trio. So there's the father and the mother. And uh, what familial phasing does is, is try to say, you know, for each, each variant here, did they come from mom or dad? As you can see here very clearly, um, the mother of NA12878 has, has no variant. She's completely homozygous reference, beautiful. And the father here has two different haplotypes. One is this sort of in-phase heterozygous mutations, and another one is reference with alternate. And so what you can say based on this is that these two variants co-occur and in addition, because of the mother being fully referenced, here's the mother's haplotype and here's the father's haplotype. And so if you're interested in potentially maternal effects at this site, you can say they would occur from this haplotype and not this haplotype. Um, in addition, you know these, these two SNPs happen to be very close together, but these this phasing algorithm can look at variants that are very far apart. And you might imagine that your confidence in the genotypes of these two sites might be quite different. But knowing that this is coming from the father's haplotype means that even if this were low coverage, because you know the mother's genotypes confidently, you have better understanding of what the genotype of the daughter should be, based simply on Mendelian transmission. So, uh, we provide three methods of um, providing phasing. And there are really two kinds of phasing. There is phasing with respect to transmission, and there's also phasing with respect to other variants. And uh, typical population-based imputation really focuses on phasing with respect to other variants, whereas looking at transmission focuses on phasing based on transmission. And read phasing, again, is a physical way of looking at variants and saying, with respect to one another, how are they coming from the same molecule or are they coming from different molecules? Okay, so phase by transmission is our first tool. And it's a technique where if you have trios, you can assess the phasing with respect to transmission of the variants. Read-back phasing looks at reads, or even pairs of reads, and asks, you know, how often when there's a variant in one read, do you also see another variant in the same read or in some mated reads? So you know it's reading from the same molecule, right? So if we go back here, what this is telling you is that all of these reads you see crossing through both of these uh, SNPs here, that's telling you that they're reading the same molecule. So these SNPs are physically phased together, and they're segregating together, at least as far as we observe. Uh, and finally, we have a kind of hook into imputation software, which uses a sort of hidden Markov model to assess what are the relationships between variants in a large window in a population. All right, so first, if we look at at phase by transmission, again, this is looking at trios, and you can have as many trios as you want in your data set, but it's sort of restricted to, to trios themselves. And the idea is you have a lot of parent-child groups. And you want to look at the genotype likelihoods of mom, dad, and the child and determine the phasing of multiple variants with respect to mom and dad. Um, And uh, this is a tool that was developed by uh, Laurent, who uh, was with the group last year. Um, And uh, it's particularly useful in that it tries to model de novo mutations, where mom is homozygous and dad is homozygous, but the the offspring happens to have a completely new mutation, and so it doesn't try to stomp on potential errors, but it tries to, to have a trade-off between the possibility of an error versus the possibility of a de novo mutation. So not only does this does phase by um, by sort of the transmission from mom and dad, but it also can sort of help your genotype likelihoods. A second tool we provide, which was developed by Menachem Fromer, is read-backed phasing. Again, this has to do with looking at um, many reads and read pairs and assessing how often do uh, SNPs, when you see them, occur in reads that are physically linked, that you know come from the same molecule. Um, and again, it's a very simple command line. Um, because it uses the reads to assess phasing, you have to give it the BAM file as well as the VCF. Um, now, I had mentioned before these two different concepts of phasing, the sort of phasing by inheritance versus phasing by SNPs, by by the linkage to other variants in the region. Um, The way that is uh, encapsulated in the VCF is that um, the maternal haplotype is usually on the left and the paternal haplotype is usually on the right. Now, in terms of population studies where you have unrelated individuals, it doesn't so much matter. But if you, if you have a VCF on input that you know is already phased with respect to maternal and paternal, the respect phase input will keep that ordering of the alleles. And so it will go into a slightly different representation rather than flipping alleles back and forth. Um, so that's just a, a technical thing. But it's also the reasons where if you're trying to apply all of these, you need to go in this order because this step will enforce the maternal and paternal haplotypes, um, But it's a, it's a minor, minor detail. Um, if you just want to read back phase, give it the BAM, give it the VCF, tell it where to stick it, and, you know, you don't, it's unphased on input, so you don't care. Um, finally, uh, there is statistical imputation. Now, this relies on having a what's called an imputation panel, which can either be um, all of the data if you have a large study or your data plus some other panel. so for instance you could use if you sequence 60 individuals from Europe and you want to know the phasing you can take them plus thousand genomes the European samples plug them through our pipeline here to call into an imputation software and then that will give you the phasing on not just your samples but also the thousand genome samples and then you can subset just to yours um, and so the way this pipeline works is Uh, you take your VCF file and basically this tool spits out a new formatted file and it's a file formatted to be read in by a software program called Beagle which does uh, genotype refinement imputation and phasing. Um, It produces an output and then you take that output and using a second tool called Beagle output to VCF does exactly what you think it does. It takes Beagle's output and it dumps it into a VCF for you. Um, And both... The the command lines and the documentation for this are all on the GATK docs, It's very nice. Now, I do have a note here. Um, So there is a version of Beagle, Beagle 4. Uh, The preview is now available if you Google it. Um, Beagle 4 takes VCF and produces VCF. So uh, you can, there's a preview of it that's online, it hasn't been fully released yet. But once it's fully released, this tool is in some sense deprecated because Beagle will just take in a VCF and write out a VCF for you. And so here's here's what you get. You start with, here's what is produced by unified genotype or a haplotype caller. You have three SNPs, one which is a de novo, variant only in the child, one which is de novo novo and homozygous, which may be some kind of an error. Um, And here is... This is a very interesting example. <laughs> probably the, the labels are swapped here. But uh, the, the point is that the formatting of these things has sort of changed. So, so here's, here's an interesting one, right? So what's happened is now... Um, yeah, it's probably... Well, it's interesting because the genotype here has changed. Huh, very interesting. I'll have to talk to Eric about this one. Um, but <laughs> the, the point is that the formatting of these things have changed so that you see the genotypes now have a parallel bar rather than a, a slash, and that means that they've been phased together. Um, and uh, now a phasing, a phasing quality has been added to these as well. Um, but basically what's, what's happening is that the format of the VCF has been changed in order to encode phasing information. Um, and with, in particular with Beagle, you get another of extra fields telling you, what is the likelihood of the genotypes having taken all of the region and the whole context into account. And so you have your likelihoods from sequencing that then get changed because you have a lot more information because of the LD structure of that particular region. <clears throat> so then there's a question of, you know, are my geno- have my genotypes improved or did they get worse? Or how good is my phasing? How do you assess whether You phase things well. How do you assess whether your genotypes are now better refined or whether you use genotypes from a different population and everything's got all kinds of screwed up? Um, In terms of phasing, we don't really have a good way to evaluate, unfortunately. Um, The best we can do is sort of ask about recombination deserts and how many times we have phase flips in a recombination desert because those are unlikely. Um, there's a whole burgeoning field of, of physical and statistical phasing which talks about things like switch error rate. And I'll reference you to uh, our, our forum or our other forums to sort of talk about these things. Um, in terms of genotype refinement, obviously genotype concordance, if you have truth data, really tells you uh, whether that's working well or not. You can also do things like leave out samples when you do genotype refinement and ask whether there's high or low concordance. If there's high concordance, then that means a few things changed, which is, you know, reasonable. But if everything is changing, you know something has gone wrong. Um, yeah. And so that's sort of it for um, phasing and re- recalibrating your genotypes. Uh, are there any questions on that particular section? Mhm. Right. Um, so the, the question is, if you're if you have an exome sequencing project, um, how well does phasing work? Especially if you don't have trios, you just have a population, um, and that that is uh, there's. There's literature on that I can't pretend to be an expert on statistical phasing, but it would have to do with the size of the LD blocks and the distances between them so for instance, you might imagine that phasing within an exon should be really quite good, especially you can use reback phasing for, for small exons like that. but if you're asking you know what is the phase between you know, a gene on the first arm of chromosome one and a gene on the second arm of chromosome one, that's a diff- different question. You have population panels that you can get these sort of long-range LD, but how much long-range LD exists is a different question. Any other questions? Oh. Mm-hmm. So the, the question is, how is the, the reference data used. And by reference, you mean the, like, the human reference. Um, yes, exactly. Um, so the question is, when doing phase by transmission, how is the human reference used? Um, and the answer is, it's used simply by our, our traversal engine. And everything, uh, everything is determined by the likelihoods present in the VCF file. So in some sense, there's no bias towards the reference allele or otherwise. It just uses the likelihoods that are present. It doesn't need to be a trail, the trails. trails. Yeah. Uh, oh, the trio. Um, yeah. So the 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 so for phasing by transmission, you must be a trio, but it doesn't take account what the human reference is. Oh, when you're doing population-based phasing, do the reference panel need to be trios as well? You have trio data. So uh, I guess, what do you mean by reference data? So the human reference data is just, um, it's basically just a a list of nucleotides. It's not even diploid, it's haploid. So it's not used at all. So the human, human reference isn't assumed even to be a person, just to be a list of nucleotides that approximates what everybody's genome looks like to the point that you can align to it. Um, So another piece on this branch where we call out into other tools and allow their output to come back into VCF is doing functional annotation. Um, And in particular, annotating protein coding sequences for the potential effects of of variation. Um, And in order to do this, we rely on a tool called SNPF. Um, And the idea behind doing this is, you know, to, to answer biological questions about potential protein changes that a variant might have. So for instance, um, a typical uh, example would be you're interested in a particular gene or gene families, and you have discovered an amount of variation in there from exome sequencing. And a number of these variants will be rare. And so you come up with this idea of doing a burden test, where rather than looking at each variant, each rare variant on its own, you aggregate them into a sort of score per individual and say, is that score? Um, affecting my phenotype or my disease in any way. And one way of constructing these scores is to look only at loss of function variation, or to look only at non-synonymous, or to call out to other kinds of annotation and group by particular annotation class. Um, And so, in that sense, functional annotation is one of these steps that links um, the kinds of genotype and site information we provide to answer biological questions. Um, and so, again, we use a, a tool called SNPF, which is available online at Source, SourceForge. And what it'll do is it'll take in uh, a sort of VCF file and its own transcript database, and it'll produce a VCF file. Um, but the VCF file is loaded with information and potentially more information than you may want to consider, and so what we allow you to do is take in the original VCF file and the SNPF VCF file and subset down just to the information you want, or information that you might want. But the point is that you have not just a sort of digested information here, but you also have the original information that you can always go back to. Um, So here's how you run SNPF, it's very simple. You you pass in your VCF, and you pipe it to your app with VCF. And this is giving you verbose output and, t- and telling you only to look at the coding genes. Um, the database for SNPF is a built in, has a way to download it yourself, and running with only coding in human databases. What that does is it restricts only to protein coding transcripts. There are plenty of observed RNAs that don't correspond to observed proteins. And so, If you leave out this, you'll get annotations based on RNAs that aren't known for coding proteins, basically. And that's why you want to run with only coding is true. So here's what SNPF provides. Um, And what happens is it provides an annotation for every transcript that a particular variant overlaps. Um, And I have another note here that I did while I was here. If you look at the ensemble database, and you look just at the data from the thousand genomes project there are about 300,000 variants that overlap exomes or exons of those 300,000 variants for the ensemble database about 250,000 overlap more than one transcript in this particular way more than one protein coding transcript and so when most of the variants you discover have this large amount of information, it can be difficult to digest and process, especially if you just say, which ones are synonymous? I don't. I, first, I'm eliminating synonymous things because I really think that the protein change is driving my trait. Um, and so, in order to reduce this down, we provide a tool, or we provide a module in variant annotator that will take VCFs annotated with this information and subset it down. So Again, you just call in variant annotator. You say, I'm using a, S- a SNPF annotation. Here is my SNPF file. Here's my original file. And this is my digested one. And what it does is, in this part- long string that SNPF provides of potential protein changes for all of the transcripts that that particular variant overlaps, it says, which is the worst one? Right? If I'm interested in excluding synonymous variants, if the worst possible one is synonymous, then no matter what, I, I don't want to consider this variant. Um, however, if that's not what you want, there's always the original file to go back to to get all of the information. Um, and so here's an example. So it looks, looks through all of this. Here's a non, non-synonymous coding. Here's a synonymous coding for this transcript. And here's one that's really damaging, right? It's highly damaging, because it's mutating a splice-side acceptor. And this is the transcript that it's going to pull out here. And so when you get the effect here, it's much, much smaller. It gives you the, the gene. It gives you uh, that it's a splice-side acceptor, and it gives you the sort of impact. Um, so that's functional annotation in a nutshell. Um, so that, uh, I would assume so. It, but you'll need to download transcript databases that are available and curated by SNPF, right? And so there's probably a way to provide your own database in a particular format. Um, if you go to the SourceForge page and contact uh, Pablo who developed it, I'm, I'm sure he can give you more information. Other questions? I'm sorry? Mm-hmm. So yes, variant annotator takes in um, one file at a time. So if you have 100 VCF files to annotate, you'll have to run variant annotator 100 times, unless there's some relationship between the VCFs and you can combine them together before annotation.